Scientist the Human Podcast commencing. Welcome to this episode of Scientist the Human Podcast. I'm here with Dr. Mariam Mojaz, who is an astrophysicist, astronomer, That's right. and a professor of physics at New York University. Thank you for chatting with me. I appreciate this. Well, thanks for inviting me. All right. So your research focuses on stellar death. Yes? That's Part right. Of it. Part of it. Um, specifically, supernovae and gamma ray bursts. But I guess before we go into stellar death, can we kind of discuss a little bit about how stars are formed, how they're born? Sure, sure. I'm happy to do that. So stars are like humans in a certain way. They are born, they live, and many of them die within the age of the universe. Um, so the way stars form um, is somewhat debated for the high-mass stars. So just a little background, stars have different masses. And basically it turns out the mass of the star is a very, very important uh, parameter. It's a very important um, property that determines everything about the star. So it actually determines how hot it's going to be, how big it's going to be, and also determines its fate, how it's going to die. Um, so for high-mass stars, when we talk about high-mass stars, we talk about stars that are more massive than eight times the mass of the sun. So for those high-mass stars, um, they're born in a cloud of gas um, where the molecules become closer and denser, and at some point gravity takes over and just basically pulls even more matter um, together. Mm-hmm. Um, and at some point, and that's where some theorists still debate how exactly you make a star. Okay. Um, so yeah, so, so stars form, we see them forming in our own Milky Way. Um, we have these beautiful images with the Hubble Space Telescope mm-hmm. that shows us, for example, the Orion Nebula. So this is the Orion a Nebula in the constellation of Orion that we can see even from New York, from Manhattan. Um, and so there are, there are regions in our own galaxy where we see that stars form. We also see how they, um, as a snapshot, how they evolve, how they live. Um, And then, um, especially the high-mass ones that I study, so the high-mass stars that are more massive than eight times the mass of the sun, they die in a very spectacular way. They die in form of a big, fat explosion. And so that's what I study. A big, fat explosion. (laughs) Exactly. So that's, that's, that's what I study. Oh, okay. So that is a supernova. Yes, so supernova comes, uh, nova comes from Latin, and it means new. So it's a bit ironic, because uh, before people realized what uh, these things are, they looked to them as if they were new stars, uh, because they were suddenly so bright. Uh, okay. But it turns out a supernova is not a new star, but it's actually the death of an old star. But the death itself, the explosion, is so luminous. It can be as luminous as a whole galaxy that consists of billions of stars that it really outshines the whole galaxy. Um, and so on the night sky, sky, it does look like a new point of light. But it's not a new star. It's a, it's a death of an old star. So when you say that it outshines a whole galaxy, how, how are you measuring that? Is it with, are you looking at just visible light? Or is Good it, question. It, so that's where also the distinction between gamma bursts and supernova comes in. Because I just told you what supernova are, mm-hmm. but I haven't told you anything about gamma bursts. So it turns out 
the light that gets produced by a supernova has its most emission in the optical wavelength range. But as you might remember from, you know, intro physics, when we talk about light, the visible light is only one small part of the whole electromagnetic spectrum. So the whole electromagnetic spectrum includes gamma rays, you know, x-rays that you get, you know, x-rays at your doctors for, you know, dental appointment, um, as well as radio waves. So it's a whole electromagnetic wavelength range. And the visible range is actually a very, very small part of that. But it turns out the supernovae emit most of their light in the visible range. And so when we make these comparisons with whole galaxies, we do this comparison in the visible range. However, gamma ray bursts, as the name says, emit a lot of light in gamma rays. And gamma rays are the highest energy photons. So each photon that comes and hits your eye, well, in that case, hopefully it will not hit your eye because that would be very damaging. Right. <laughs> but if it hits the eye of the telescope with which you're observing, um, they have the highest energies. And so when people measure uh, the amount of energy that they get, um, they get for gamma ray bursts that lots of that energy was released in the gamma rays, more than in the optical. Mm. And so one of the outstanding qu- questions um, that we have in astrophysics is which stars give rise to which kinds of explosions? Uh, which stars give rise to gamma ray bursts, which are very extreme explosions? As I mentioned, they just release so many high-energy uh, photons, and they can outshine the whole gamma ray sky in just a few seconds. So which stars give rise to those extreme explosions, and which stars give rise to more your run-of-the-mill kind of explosion, which is a supernova? So, what would happen if a gamma ray would hit you in the eyeball? Oh, that would be bad. That would be very bad. I mean, it, you know, these are it just it's it's you can think of it as really like a high velocity ball, you know, hitting you, hitting your whole body. So it, it so these gamma rays they would have a high energy because that's basically what the ball has that hits you. The reason why it hurts when it hits you is because all the energy, the kinetic energy it has just gets released when it hits your part of your shoulder. So if a gamma ray or gamma rays were to hit you, mm-hmm. you would feel it? You would physically feel it? Or um, but, if it was over time? No, so actually I shouldn't, say, uh, I shouldn't say that you feel it. I would say that you would feel the impact because it would damage uh, okay. um, you. And, and it wouldn't be like a you know, painful like a wound or anything. But you know, the reason why people, of course, say you, know, you shouldn't get too much x-ray emission you know, mm. is that it causes mutations in your cells, and so that might give rise to cancer mm-hmm. and so forth. And so gamma rays is similar to... Yes, so gamma rays have even higher energies. Mm-hmm. So you have gamma rays as the highest energy photons, and then after that you have X-rays, and then what's called UV and so forth. So gamma rays are even more deadly, basically, than um, X-rays. Oh, okay. And so if you have, you know, in the science fiction, when you look at villains, they always have these gamma ray you know, pistols or mm-hmm. guns or something. Right. Um, so gamma rays are the highest energy photons. So what those what those uh, science fiction villains are really doing are giving the good guys cancer. <laughs> <With> the, well, yes, and then yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but but yeah. So I mean, for us, the good news is that the atmosphere that we have, 
is not only important because it includes oxygen, which we need for breathing, but also it absorbs all the gamma ray light right. that comes from outer space. So that's why with astronauts, like for long-term trips, like exactly. when they're, they're contemplating this trip to Mars. So that's one of the main concerns, right? It's, it's the radiation Exactly, exposure. it's the radiation exposure, that's right. right. And then you have different kinds of radiation. You have gamma rays, x-rays, You all, but gamma rays are more problematic um, you also have what's called cosmic rays. Okay. So cosmic rays are not photons. They're actually particles. They're protons um, really? or electrons or ions, and they move at high energies. I thought a cosmic ray was just like an umbrella term. For no, no, no. It's a very no. specific thing. Oh, yeah, these okay. are specific things. And actually one of the outstanding questions is what is the composition of these cosmic rays? They're not, uh, they're, they don't constitute light. They're, they're, they don't consist of photons, but they consist of some kind of, um, particles, and that's what we're still debating: is it is it a is it just protons, is it electrons, or is it some kind of ion? Okay. So when you so you, have you viewed uh, a supernova while it's been going on? Yes. In, in so what many does times. many times? So what and is that also invisible light? I know you said that the that the gamma ray burst you can view on an optical wavelength, but is supernova light also visible light? So yes. Or is it a different part of the spectrum? So yes, the supernova light um, that that gets released is in the optical. So we see okay. it with our eyes. So ah, actually, okay. we did see a supernova with our naked eye, mm-hmm. uh, especially if you lived in the southern hemisphere in '87, because in 1987, in February, we received light, visible light, from a supernova that occurred in our backyard. And of course, for astronomers, the term backyard is very relative, right. <laughs> which we mean by backyard is it went off in a nearby dwarf galaxy in the large magnetic cloud, which mm-hmm. is only visible from the south. Okay. So, for example, in Chile, in Australia, in Brazil, um, that's where people saw the supernova with the naked eyes for a couple of months. Okay. And actually made the front page of the, um, the Time magazine. And, you know, worldwide it was uh, well covered and um, debated and discussed. And it was a very interesting supernova that led to new insights about which stars give rise to explosions. Um, it really improved our understanding of how the explosion actually happened because there is a little bit of an... Um, well, dichotomy in a way, because the explosion, before the explosion of the star, there's actually an implosion. And the question is, how does the implosion of the star turn into an explosion? And so we have had a lot of theories about what what caused it, and those observations that were made in 87 by using neutrinos, which are ghost particles, in Mm. a way, um, they really verified our, our understanding and our theory of how explosions of massive stars happen. So when, when you view a supernova, when you, let's say that you were just, uh, you were, I guess in a rural area, just to make mm-hmm. it a little easier. So let's say you were just looking up and let's say there's a supernova happening, happening in, in your sight line. And so to the na- naked eye, it would just seem like a star, right? If you were just looking at it, it would just seem mm-hmm. like a dollar. So if you're, let's say you're getting a little bit of assistance from a very powerful telescope, what would a supernova look like if you look at it through a telescope? 
Well, it would look like a point of light. Oh, it still would like a. Yeah. It would still look like a point of light. Because they're too far away. They're right? too far they're, to resolve right. it, so you don't see the size getting bigger. Okay. Um, so actually, what is happening is that um, the basically we can think of it as a bit of a fireball that is expanding, that is becoming bigger. But usually, these are, all these stars are so far away that with just the, our eyes, um, and even with some of our telescopes, we would not be able to see the actual increase in size on the sky. Oh, okay. uh, but what we would see would be a brightening source of light that wasn't there before. And depending on which kind of explosion it is, it could stay the same brightness for many months, or it might decline slowly over a matter of weeks. So you said that it would look like a ball of fire expanding, something like that. Mm -hmm. Would it... So would it be spherical? Because in a lot of a lot of animations that, that we see on TV or in science programs, they seem to, maybe not all of them, but a lot of what I've seen, they seem to show supernova as having a plane, like they have like a disk shape to them. So that's a good question. So what is the geometry of these right. explosions? And so that's actually a very um, interesting question that I also worked on. And it looks like from different points of... Um, view as well as from different lines of evidence that these explosions are not fully spherical. Um, they, they look like um, they have large-scale asphericities. Uh, and depending on what kind of observation you did, if you observed the supernova remnant, so once the supernova itself fades away, you still have the stuff that got ejected and that's still interacting with the stuff between stars called the interstellar medium. Mm -hmm. So anyhow, you get different shapes. Um, and um, it looks like um, all these explosions, they're not fully spherical. We still debate why there is um, this asphericity, but it looks like it's pretty generic, and the different models that people have for what um, caused that specific supernova, they all predict that they will be asphericities. But the, the scale of it and whether it was, if there was a jet, I mean, that's, that's another question, whether you have a, you know, some kind of like big outflow with a big um, opening angle or whether it's a really narrow pencil beam shape kind of jet, mm -hmm. uh, that we have a little bit of discussions on. And it looks like the ones that are GRBs, the, one, the stars that produce a gamma ray burst, those um, objects are able to produce a pencil beam uh, a jet, oh, okay. um, and those are the the like laser beam, of not optical light as mm -hmm. our laser pointers, but of of gamma rays. Gamma rays, but going um, in in, in two, two, directions. two directions, exactly, exactly, in two okay. directions. Okay. Um, and so the perhaps visualizations you have seen of those is that we think that gamma ray bursts might be coming from systems where a black hole is produced during the death of the star. So these are still from deaths of massive stars. So the death of the star still produced, well, did produce a black hole, and that black hole was accreting from its surrounding. Basically, it was sucking matter from its surrounding, and that was producing this disk. And that's what yeah, you might have seen. The accretion disk, right? Yeah. Exactly, the accretion disk. And then in perpendicular to that, we see in many other instances wow. that a jet gets so formed. That's what that is. Oh, yes. okay. So it's a gamma ray burst. Exactly. So that's in a lot of images with the accretion disk and some light or some form of, so it's gamma rays. It's yeah, some kind of jets mm -hmm. that come out at uh, perpendicular to the disk in two directions. Oh, so okay. that's our, our um, view or one of the 
popular models for gamma ray bursts. Ah, okay. So for supernova, the idea is that you don't necessarily have to have a black hole in the center produced, or in most cases, actually not a black hole, but a neutron star. Um, and the, the, you don't produce necessarily jets, but you, the ejector, so the, the, the outgoing shock wave, this is getting a little bit technical, the outgoing <laughs> shock wave might not be fully spherical. Mm. So at certain areas, the shock wave might be faster than in other areas. So there might be some, in, some mm. asphericities. And one way to have these kinds of asphericities is what's called the Rayleigh's Taylor instability. So that's kind of instability where you have some kind of you know, eddy currents that you can see even in fluids mm -hmm. on, on, on Earth. Um, and so they might give rise to a small asphericities. You mentioned neutron star. Mm -hmm. uh, neutron star is just an extremely a small, small, extremely dense mm -hmm. star made of only neutrons. Yes, that's right. what the, the um, name would suggest. But it turns mm -hmm. out we still have some debate that there's... Um, there's actually, it's a bit more complicated. It's not just neutrons, but in okay. this case, that it's very dense. Um, so you can think of it in a very simplistic way as a ball of neutrons uh, with other kinds of features on the crust. So we think we have like lattices um, of, of um, different elements mm -hmm. um, at the very top, but uh, there's still some debate how it exactly looks like in the center where it's very dense. Okay. But indeed, these are very dense objects. Um, so, for example, to just give you an understanding, if you, um, uh, the, the neutron stars are so dense that one spoonful of a neutron star would have the same mass as a mountain. So imagine you crush <laughs> the whole mountain, like mm. Mount Everest. Okay. You crush it and you com compress it so much that the whole mass of the Mount Everest fits into one teaspoon. So they're super dense. They're right. very dense objects. And, these and, and con conceptually, that's the, I guess you can think that you, at first, first time you hear that, you might think that's impossible, that makes no sense. But an atom is mostly empty space in one way, right? So that's, and the center of the nucleus, protons and neutrons, so it's just neutrons. There's no electrons going exactly. around. There's no empty space, really, so there's just... Exactly. So you said uh, that's how, on a microscopic level, you can understand neutron stars such as uh, the ones I just discussed, mm -hmm. as such objects where, you know, in normal atoms you have lots of free space uh, between neutrons, you know, between this, the, well, depends if you have just the hydrogen, you have only protons, but okay, so the other objects mm -hmm. where uh, there's lots of space between the nuclei, and remember, you know, again from uh, intro physics in high school, so atoms, the nucleus consists of protons and neutrons, and then you have electrons that whiz around, basically, uh, around the nucleus. And so that's how most, well, all of the, the, the particles that we consist of, that's how they're built. Uh, for neutrons or neutron stars, um, what you can think of is that the nuclei are really packed very densely together. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's how, yeah. If you have a lot of compression, I mean, you can think of it as a really physically. Like if you have a look, mm -hmm. if you're able to pack things together and keep packing them, then um, at some point you would be able to even pack neutrons or nuclei together. Just an insanely dense ball. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you mentioned black holes. And mm -hmm. Another thing I wanted to ask you is how come, and maybe this just depends on the mass of the star, but maybe there's more to it. 
how come some stars die as supernova mm-hmm. and others collapse into a black hole or are are they or are they not mutually exclusive? Oh, very good question. Yeah. <laughs> so I can tell you the uh, National Geographic kind of answer, and then I can tell you what my research is about. <laughs> okay. We can start with the National Geographic, okay. and we'll move on to the research. Okay, so the National Geographic answer is that um, the, the simplistic idea that also kind of makes sense is that perhaps more massive stars give rise to more massive remnants. And for neutron stars, there is a mass limit. They can only be less than around two solar masses. To be able to be held up by what's called nutrient degeneracy pressure. So that's, there's a mass limit. However, if the core of the star, the core of the dying star, is more massive than two solar masses, it will become a black hole. Because oh, no, then it's good. too massive to be held up against gravity by neutron degeneracy pressure, so gravity wins, and it becomes a black hole. Because that's what black holes are. Um, black holes are not necessarily big or massive. What is important about them is that they're super dense. So we talked about neutron stars as super dense objects. Black holes are even denser. Because the idea is that in black holes you fit all the mass of the core, let's say a few solar masses, into zero volume. Zero volume? <laughs> yes, so, it's a, so the core is a, a singularity. So that's what they call a singularity. Yeah. So, so black holes are the densest objects in the universe where gravity has completely won. Because gravity, remember, is always pulling things together. And so for black holes, there was no other kind of pressure that was able to sustain itself against the pull of gravity. So for black holes, gravity won, and they are incredibly dense. Oh, okay. So then the idea, as I mentioned, the National Geographic idea is that, well, perhaps more massive stars give rise to more massive remnants, and so therefore the more massive stars give rise to black holes. And the value that people quote, or have quoted, is about 25 to 30 solar masses. If your star is more massive than around 30 times the mass of the sun, it might produce, or it will produce a black hole. Okay. But there's a, there's a huge gap, because you said a neutron star can only be about two solar masses? Yes, yeah, so you so, might wonder how would you be able to make out of a 20 solar mass star a 2 solar mass neutron star. So what happens is that that's the amount in the core. Mm-hmm. However, during the supernova, the outer layers get actually expelled. So um, out of whatever, the 20 solar masses you have, actually lots of it gets expelled. And we see evidence that supernova expel up to 10 to 15 to 20 solar masses. Ah, okay. So, so the explosion, the, 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 what gets expelled is most of, obviously it's the stuff that's closer to the surface. Yes. Right? And the heavier elements are what end up forming a neutron star? Is, is that? Or the neutrons from the heavier elements is what... Um, so, so that's a good question. So there are a number of things involved. So let's do, so let's do step by step. So let's sure. talk about the, the life of a massive star just before it dies. Okay. So what happens is that, as we know, our sun is shining because it's turning hydrogen into helium. And actually, if you're interested in, our, in the death of our own sun, it will not go supernova. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what it, it will have a less spectacular death. 
It will have a very extended death, though life on Earth will be influenced by that and affected because what happens is when um, the sun uses up all its hydrogen in the core, it will become a red giant. So it's a little bit counterintuitive. Uh, it will actually become bigger. Expand. Okay. It will expand and oh. actually it will swallow up all the three, well, all, all the, perhaps the, th the, th the three planets, including Earth, you know. Oh, okay. Mercury, Venus, and possibly Earth. Um, uh, and then it will turn into white dwarf, <clears throat> but it will not explode. So, um, but, but the most this, the sun will do is it will turn hydrogen into helium. And then helium to carbon and oxygen. Now, um, massive stars actually continue that chain. So they not only first start turning hydrogen and helium and gaining energy that way, but they continue. They will burn or turn hydrogen, uh, helium to carbon, carbon to oxygen, oxygen to neon, neon to magnesium, magnesium to silicon, and silicon to iron. Wow. And so the various um, elements that are important for life, for example, oxygen, actually was produced in the cores of massive stars. So now when it reaches the iron core, um, and so that's what the core we're talking about, it cannot fuse iron into something heavier and still gain energy. Mm. It's just the way it works, nuclear physics, you know, wave your hands. <laughs> um, and so that's why then the core first implodes, that's what implosion I mentioned first, oh, okay. and then um, it explodes, and why is there this change? Well, what happens is that when the core implodes, when it makes a proton-neutron star, the proton-neutron star is like a brick wall. Um, so when it's like a brick wall, and when the rest of the star keeps crashing onto it, it actually produces a shock wave. And that shock wave, turns out, actually moves outwards and then somehow explodes the star. Mm. So that's how you turn an implosion into an explosion. Oh. Um, so... Now, you talked about the core, so, you know, the two solar mass only refers to the, 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 the inner core of the star, which is made out of iron. Um, and now, if the core is more massive than two solar masses, then it will produce a black hole. So that, that not a proto-neutron and a neutron star, but a black hole. Ah, okay. um, and then um, that black hole might accrete and produce a gamma ray burst. Ah, wow. Mm -hmm. But during the explosion itself, um, so what happens, and it's a little bit ironic, but the iron <laughs> that was produced in the core of the star actually, during the explosion, gets completely destroyed. So you might wonder, where does the iron in your blood come from? Well, it turns out, during the explosion itself, iron gets re-reproduced, or reproduced. Um, and so that's where the iron in your blood comes from. It comes, oh, okay. it comes really from exploding stars. So really every element, every heavy element comes from exploding stars. That's right. right. It either got produced inside the core of the star and then expelled during the explosion, or it actually got produced and synthesized during the explosion. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's really that cool. I mean, that's why I think, you know, I love this field. So actually, um, as an undergraduate at UC Berkeley, I also started working on supernovae, mm -hmm. um, so exploding stars. And I always was in, really fascinated also on a philosophical level 
by the fact that these deaths of stars, which is you know very morbid and sad occasion, mm -hmm. that they're actually so important and vital for our own life, for, life, yeah. for our own yeah. life, um, and and so their 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 moments of death is is really a, a moment of creation, of heavy elements. So, you another thing that you work on mm -hmm. is as I, I came across when I was doing some reading, is stellar forensics. Mm -hmm. Could you explain? What that is? Sure, forms. sure. So it refers to the idea that we see the deaths of stars easily. So these supernova exploding stars. So we see the moment of death, but um, we have to then work backwards like a stellar detective team to figure out how the star looked like before it exploded and what, this, what kind of star it was before it exploded. So that's why I call it stellar forensics because we see the, the forensic aspect of death but then we have to figure out what happened and how it happened and who it happened to. Wow. And so do you, do you just do that by analyzing the spectral lines of the explosion? So good question. Or? So I do two ways. So I, I try to um, get clues from both the explosions themselves, so the light and the spectra, as you said, as well as looking at the environments, the habitats. Of, of these explosions. So again, the idea is that the exploding star, the death itself, is very easy to see because it becomes so luminous. It outshines the whole galaxy. It becomes as luminous as billions of suns combined. Um, and so that's why it's been so hard to actually catch the star before it exploded. And we have done that in a few cases in the nearby universe, uh, but it's very hard to do for explosions that are further away, including gamma ray bursts. Um, and so what I do with um, the group I'm working with, which are really, you know, all great people, and I love working with them, they're postdocs, graduate students, undergraduates, um, we try to use different methods to figure out in a holistic way, in a, in a, so to speak, which kinds of star just exploded. And so by both looking at the properties of the explosion, for example, how much light got released, um, how long it took that light to get out, how fast the... Uh, Envelope is moving, so that's explosion properties, uh, but also in which kind of environment that explosion happened. Because the environment and the stars, that they're still alive, in that environment might give us also clues about how the star looked like just before it exploded, or what kind of star it was before it exploded. So, in addition to looking at the environment, you, so just by looking at the explosion itself and looking at, um, I get. Is it possible to tell what the star looked like just by analyzing the elements that are in the, I guess, the gas or in the explosion that's left over? So that's one way. So that's, that's called um, uh, the yields of supernovae. Okay. And that's one way. But it's really hard because, um, but, but that's definitely one way. So actually I should tell you back, yes, that's definitely one way how people do it for supernova remnants. So in our own Milky Way, we see... Um, the remnants of explosions that happened hundreds if not thousands of years ago. And by looking at what kind of elements got released during that explosion, they can figure out what kind of explosion it was. Uh, specifically looking at iron. Mm -hmm. So actually if you have lots of iron, then it was probably what's called a, a white dwarf explosion. So I haven't talked about those yet. Um, and if it's not as much iron and other elements like oxygen and calcium, then it was uh, a supernova from a massive star, 
to those that I study. So you might wonder, what is a white dwarf explosion? And again, will our own sun die as a white dwarf explosion? Because it will become a white dwarf. So white dwarf explosions um, are explosions where there's a white dwarf, but something else too. So either we think it's a red giant from which it's accreting material, or it's another white dwarf, and they both somehow merge or collide together. And these kinds of explosions are also very luminous. Um, and the other aspect that's important is that um, there's a correlation between um, the shape of the emission of the light and how it changes over type, time and the absolute luminosity. So basically they can be used as what's called standardizable candles. And those are the kinds of explosions that people have used to measure the expansion history of the universe. Um, and those explosions are the ones that indicate that we are living in an accelerating universe. Mm -hmm. And um, so in 2011, two uh, teams that worked on using these um, exploding stars, these white dwarf supernova, to measure the expansion history of the universe, um, they both got the Nobel Prize for physics for their discovery. So these are white dwarf explosions. Um, so those are the explosions that I don't study... Uh, predominantly, but those are important too, and, and they exist, and I have other uh, group members that also work on those. So coming back to supernovas, mm -hmm. what is a stripped core collapsed supernova? Mm -hmm. So stripped core collapsed supernova. So first of all, let's talk about core collapsed supernova. So core collapsed supernova refer to stars that are more massive than eight solar masses where the core collapses. So this is the implosion part that I mentioned. Oh, okay. So you have an sure. iron core at the end of the life of the star, of a massive star. You make an iron core, and that core then collapses. And then you have this reversal where you get actually an explosion out of it. So these are core collapse supernova. Now, what are stripped envelope core collapse supernova? Stripped envelope. So those are... So, so now it turns out that... Um, the star, the massive star, just before explosion, looks like almost like an onion, uh, meaning that it has different layers. Mm -hmm. And for these stars, the layers consist of different elements. Oh, this is what we were talking about. So, when, sorry to interrupt you. So, mm -hmm. just just the 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 layers, the elements that are near close to the mm -hmm. surface, are what get dispelled. Exactly. Okay. Sorry. Exactly. So it turns okay. out that the outermost layer is hydrogen, which is you know out of which it was made, so pristine. Then. Helium is the next inner envelope or layer because that's where, where hydrogen was turned into helium. And then the next inner one after helium is oxygen and carbon and so forth. So there's almost, you can think of it as different layers of different elements. Though it's not fully correct. I mean, people who do models of these kinds of stars, they say there's actually a lot of turbulence. So it's not like just a, a cut, you know, clean cut layer, but it's, it's actually lots of mixing. But first order, you can think of it as layers. Um, and so these stripped envelope uh, core collapse supernova are explosions of stars where the outermost layers have been somehow removed and somehow stripped away. Um, so they're ones that have been removed only of the hydrogen layer, and they're called 1Bs for historical reasons. Um, they still have the helium layer intact, and we see those helium lines in the spectrum of the supernova. So just remind people what a spectrum is. A spectrum is when you take light 
like the sun light and you disperse it or you break it up as a function of wavelength or color. And so that's how we would see a, a rainbow. Because a rainbow is you take sunlight and you split it up as a function of colors and you see all the colors of the rainbow. So um, the same thing you can do with light from supernovae. Um, of course, you don't need to have a water drop for that, but we need you know, telescopes for that. Um, so then you can do, uh, look at the light of a star as a function of color. And when you do that, you actually can get the fingerprints of different elements. And so that's how you can tell that actually this object still has helium, so it must have still its helium layer intact. So the, the normal core collapse, they, are, they still have hydrogen and the helium layers intact and all the other ones. The 1Bs have their hydrogen layers removed, but still helium is there. So you still see helium, but no hydrogen. And the most strip stars, uh, they give rise to explosions where you don't see hydrogen nor helium. Um, so those are stripped envelope core collapse supernovae. And actually the, the supernovae, so I mentioned gamma ray bursts, so actually during the gamma ray or after the gamma ray burst itself has faded. So the gamma ray burst itself only lasts for seconds. So it's a really brief, very brief flash of gamma rays. But once that has faded, um, you still see a supernova. And this supernova, in all cases, has been a kind of supernova that didn't show hydrogen nor helium. So it must come from the, the most stripped stars. So that's one oh, clue we have from okay. just looking at the spectra from the explosion properties that only the most stripped stars without hydrogen nor helium have given rise to gamma ray bursts. Wow. So gamma ray bursts don't necessarily have to be paired with black holes? So that's a good question. So in the... the the National Geographic idea has been that you have a very massive star, you know, more than 30 solar masses. Somehow it re got um, removed um, um, of its hydrogen and helium layers and then produced a black hole that then produced a jet, but also a gamma ray burst. Mm. Um, now, there have been other more recent models that show or suggest, I should say suggest, that actually a certain kind of neutron star might also produce a gamma ray burst. And these specific kinds of neutron stars are called magnetars. Magnetars? Yes. Wow. <laughs> so not magneto, but <laughs> similar idea in the sense that these are neutron stars with very strong magnetic fields. Oh, okay. And so they might also give rise to gamma ray bursts, and that's uh, also debated in the, in, the, in the field and research right now. So you mentioned you went to, you went to Berkeley, or you went mm -hmm. to UC Berkeley. And which is just like a mind-blowingly fantastic place to be for physics. And you went there for your undergrad? Yes. And so what was that experience like? Did you know right away once you got to college or before college that you wanted to study physics? Did you get there, take one course in physics, say, hey, how, how did that happen? Yes, so for me personally, though, you know, there are many different paths mm -hmm. <laughs> to astronomy, I actually knew that I wanted to do astronomy as a child. Oh. So as a child, well... Um, once I started reading, uh, so not too young, but once I started reading um, and I read about uh, planets and black holes, um, so I grew up in Germany, so there they have lots of really cool science books for kids. Um, and um, one of the series is called Was is Was? What is What? It's like a time life 
um, uh, series. And so I actually liked all kinds of science. I loved reading about um, ancient Egypt. I loved reading about dinosaurs. Of course, you know, <laughs> which mm -hmm. kid doesn't? Right. But I also really liked um, space-related things. So the moon, planets, uh, the solar system, Milky Way, the galaxy, black holes. So I always liked um, those things, and I thought they were always fascinating. Um, and so when I grew up, I also liked, of course, Star Trek, you know, Next Generation, mm -hmm. all that. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I always liked astronomy from the beginning. Okay. And so when I went to high school and had to choose which um, subjects I need to put emphasis on, I really also liked math and physics, which you need to really do astronomy on a more professional level. And so that just led from there. Just yeah, I, mean, I liked um, the field. I liked the, the tools you need. Um, and so when I came to Berkeley, I, I knew that I wanted to do astronomy. And so I specifically started to major in astronomy. Um, and I also started um, talking to some of the astronomy faculty, even though I was still taking, you know, intro physics classes. Mm -hmm. And one specific professor I met, actually my first week of um, undergrad, and he was giving a talk to uh, my undergrad dorm. And um, his name is uh, Professor Alex Filipenko, and he talked about black holes. And that was, of course, very exciting and very interesting. And so I went up and had lots of questions about them. And then a year later, when I was looking for a summer kind of internship in astronomy, I knocked on various professors' doors. And it turns out Professor Alex Filipenko was one of them. And he remembered me from a year ago. And I told wow. him that, you know, I, I love astronomy. I have always taken these classes. Um, if he has any kind of... Uh, research, I could participate in in some way, even not paid or anything, just for the experience. Um, so he mentioned he is actually leading a team of people who are looking for exploding stars, who are searching for supernovae, and they would have an opening, which is even paid, <laughs> over the summer to help out searching for supernovae. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I got started in doing astronomy research, not just reading about exploding stars, but actually actively searching for them, and that was super cool. Right. And so then it was it was clear I would I would major in that direction and continue also afterwards. So you just, you had a very early exposure to telescopes right away in undergrad. So actually, right? so, yeah, as an undergrad, maybe, yeah, or, but no, so yeah, so um, not so much as a kid. I mean, sometimes people think of astronomers like oh, the kid who had a telescope and was always looking at stars. That was not the case for me. Um, I always liked them more from this reading up point of view. Um, and um, but then when I went to um, undergrad and I participated in research right away, then yes, I had access to telescopes. But also because you you were proactive, <laughs> you, you yeah. seeked out of it, yeah. which I is, I guess is a really good tip. For yes, students looking to get involved, you know, more in their field. Yes, yeah, definitely, definitely. So after you did this, it was a summer research experience. Um, so that is that kind of where you were first. Uh, not first exposed to supernovas, but you, you got your first in-depth look yes. at, I guess, astronomy research mm -hmm. and supernovas. So since then, you've just focused on, I mean, you, you do, kind of broadly you do, but part of your focus is supernova. And so, mm -hmm. so is that kind of where it took off for you and you just stuck with it? And uh, not so fully. So for grad school, um, I did start a new project. Um, so when I went, after I finished at Berkeley, I went on to grad school, and I wanted to try a new field, but I was still interested in black holes. Mm -hmm. um, so it turns out um, they're not only black holes after 
the death of a, of a massive star that leaves behind a black hole that you know is a few solar masses. But it turns out the universe has also very supermassive black holes. They're called supermassive black holes. <laughs> and even our own Milky Way has one at its uh, center, which is around 6 million solar masses. So um, when I went to grad school, I first actually working, started working on a project on supermassive black holes. But then for various reasons, um, uh, for my thesis then, I did switch back to supernovae mm. um, because I thought still they were super cool. And back in the day, um, in 2003, there was this um, amazing discovery made that these gamma bursts that had been known before, but were always at very large distances where you could only see the gamma rays, but nothing else. Um, those had been observed at... Um, closer distances and people had seen the supernova. They had seen this uh, stripped envelope co-collapse supernova that goes along with it. And so that was the supernova gamma ray burst connection that was established in 2003. So it was very exciting and very interesting. So that's why then I also went back to supernova and studying those kinds of new new kinds of supernova that are connected with gamma ray bursts. Quick question about black holes. Mm -hmm. If we could jump into that topic again really quickly. So you mentioned supermassive black holes that have a mass of six million suns. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't have a deep understanding of Hawking radiation, mm -hmm. but I know, I guess, the surface level mm -hmm. about it, and that that is a process by which a black hole can actually dissipate and just disappear eventually. Mm -hmm. Do is there any indication or any data that suggests that supermassive black holes are either growing or shrinking? So in terms of observational data, we actually see easier, more easily, that they're growing. However, there is, um, ever, well, there, Hawking suggests that there has to be also Hawking radiation, um, by which it can disappear, but the time scale is very, very long. So if you look at the time scale, it would be, I mean, billions and billions and billions of years. I think it would be 10 to 20 years. So that's a long time scale. Mm -hmm. Uh, but if you lived long enough <laughs> and you had one black hole that was not accreting matter, that was not eating up material and growing, then you should be able to see that the mass of the black hole was um, shrinking as a function of time more and more. And, and that, would be, um, that would be, in that sense, it would be the evidence that there has to be some mechanism and the only mechanism we know now is Hawking radiation. But we can't, it's very hard to detect Hawking radiation per se. But that also, it would kind of suggest that if the black hole is not accreting matter, then it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. But if, there's, if there is such a place that, if, if, there's a, mm -hmm. if there's a black hole in the middle of a galaxy, there's probably plenty of matter around. So that's a good question. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, for our own Milky Way, um, the black hole in the center is currently not eating, mm -hmm. basically. Um, so, but though there was some suggestion that it had this episode where it ate a little bit of gas. Uh, well, it sounds funny when I say it this way, but mm -hmm. it ate a little bit of hydrogen. Um, so, so there are instances where um, the black hole is not eating and not growing. Um, and we think that currently lots of black holes are dormant. They're sitting there lurking, but we don't see evidence that they're growing. And you only see, and usually the only way we can detect them, because as the name says, it's a black hole. It's, it's supposed to be black. And why is it black? 
It's black because the gravitational pull is so strong, that the object is so dense, that not even light can escape its gravitational pull. However, if the black hole is eating up material, the material that gets eaten up actually has to form what's called a disk, an accretion disk. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when you have that kind of accretion disk, you actually have a lot of friction. And what do you have when you have friction? You have heat. And that radiates energy. Mm -hmm. And so that's how we see growing and eating black holes. But if it's not eating, um, then we can't see it. And we have to use other ways to measure its mass and say there's something there that is black, but it's very massive. Um, but yeah, that can happen, and, and people study that. People mm -hmm. study what are the feeding mechanisms and cycles of, of, of supermassive black holes. So you went from black holes back to supernova. Mm -hmm. And while we, this is during your graduate degree. Yeah. What do you, while you were doing your, your PhD, what did you find was the most challenging part of either being at the particular institution you were at or being an astronomer? or What was the hardest thing? So I think the hardest thing, I think also in general for science and doing independent original research, is that you can easily and very often feel stupid. <laughs> because you're working on something that nobody has tried to figure out before. Um, and there are lots of challenges that come, um, and you don't know if you're going to find the answer. So there were times where, um, yeah, I think that was the most challenging, that, that I felt like, well, there's no obvious way it will be successful, there's no obvious way there's going to be an answer, but you just have to plow through it. And I was still interested because I was interested in the science. I wanted to figure it out. But, I mean, that's something when we discuss also science in general, that, yeah, that's something the kind of tolerance that, that um, one has to develop and everybody feels like that. They might not say it. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, you think, oh, you know, astrophysicists must be really smart, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know. Sorry, I don't want imply that. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, there were many times we all feel stupid and like mm -hmm. just can't figure it out. But I think just being interested in, in the process and fascinated by it helps. And, and having also the, you know, what people call grit or you know, endurance or whatever you want to call it, to just continue. To keep going. Yeah, I think that's very important mm -hmm. to point out. And the fact that, like you mentioned, that, um, you know, somebody from the outside might look in and say, oh, so-and-so is, you know, professor for so many years, has had a PhD for so many years, uh, very experienced in the field, they must have always been smart, or must have always... Smart in the sense that, you know, everything just kind of came to them, but... More often than not, the reality is every person who got to that point struggled, right? Exactly. Especially exactly. during their graduate years. Exactly. Right? That, that's exactly. part of the whole process. It's part of the whole process. Important. And actually those who, you know, appeared smart, like, you know, that actually necessarily was not um, an, the only component of success, it turns out. It was really more people who were interested and stick to it and mm. were not... Um, discouraged. Um, but what also was fascinated, I mean, that's the other thing, is I think right. scientists, uh, is, is important to have is just a fascination with the subject. And that um, is, is, is important. It's very important to be passionate about it. I mean, not that to the point of you don't do anything else, but of course, mm -hmm. you know, still interested in, in the subject and being fascinated by it um, and, and want to figure it out. 
but yeah, but they always challenge us. I think. I mean, uh, if if they if people don't tell you that, then um, it's very uncommon that that they didn't have their own challenges. Mm-hmm. And to have good mentors, right? Which it sounds like you did at least very early. You did. Yes, yes. Right. So good mentors too. So at the end of the day, we're all humans. <laughs> you know, scientists too, um, mm-hmm. and. You know, all the human aspects that are important. So mentoring, having good mentors, not only one, but multiple, mm-hmm. both on a higher level as well as peer mentoring. Right. Um, so people who um, are at the same stage as you are, but also people who are further ahead. So when I was an undergrad in the group, uh, Professor um, Alex Filipenko, I was at the beginning the most junior one. I was a first-year undergraduate. But there were also other uh, undergraduates who were a bit along, further along, as well as graduate students and postdocs. So postdocs are um, researchers that do have their PhDs, but are on a two to three year contract. So they're postdocs after their doctor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, so so yeah, I got to interact with all of them and I still keep touch with actually some of the postdocs that I knew when I was an undergraduate and so forth. So. Um, so yeah, so the human aspect is very important for me, and I think for lots of other people, um, to have that kind of support, um, as well as mentoring, as feeling community, you know, the community aspect. So I really enjoyed that at Berkeley, um, and that was always important for me wherever I was, both when I was a graduate student later and, and a postdoc, and actually even as faculty, mm-hmm. I never stopped. Great. Thank you so much mm-hmm. for this fantastic conversation. Well, thank you. Pleasure. Termination of current scientist the human episode. Stay breezy.